Hey, Teddy. Hey, Nick. Do you remember VeggieTales? Oh, God, I forgot about that. Welcome to Oh God, I Forgot About That, the podcast where we explore artifacts from turn of the millennium Christian culture. So, Teddy, I've got to ask, <laughs> did you actually forget about VeggieTales? I most certainly did not actually forget about VeggieTales. <laughs> How could you? I think most millennials who grew up with this culture we're going to remember veggie tales. It's been the one of the most common r- things that people have said to me. Are you going to do a veggie tales episode? Are you going to do a veggie tales episode? <laughs> More than anything else, in my experience anyway. I mean, I don't know if I just have a group of friends who particularly loved it, but it was a thing. I mean, it was. Um, we're going to get into some of the like how big it was, but by and large, I mean, I don't know a homeschool kid who doesn't at least remember. Veggie tales, even mm. if they don't actually have a large like lexicon, right? They're not connected to it deeply. It wasn't a part of their everyday life. Yeah. They still remember it. Mm-hmm. I was in a coffee shop the other day talking about our podcast because I'm me, and uh, the I said we were doing Veggie Tales, and the person goes, "There was a period of time Veggie Tales was bigger than Disney." I was like no shit wait really like actually that's a great place to start because okay. yes they it lying? was okay they were not lying so veggie tales was started in the like the actual big idea production company began in the late 80s like 89 and okay. so we're actually reaching back a little before our official time frame for this one hmm. the First episode of Veggie Tales, Where's God When I'm Scared, which is what we're going to talk about today when we get to our text. That came out around 1993. So just to give you sort of the scope of animation at the time, that's one year before Toy Story. Mm, okay. The James Lasseter presented early shorts, short films that were animated at this special conference of animators. They were all people who were doing things like animating science textbooks and and creating digital animation for these like really niche audiences. When Vischer creates VeggieTales, he's doing it right around the same time that people like James Lasseter are starting Pixar and George Lucas is doing things like Jurassic Park. Okay. So we're starting to see the potential of CGI without actually getting there. Mm. So Phil Vischer, the creator of VeggieTales, goes to these conferences regularly. Is he like a young guy at this point? Or what is young? He's a little he's around our age at this point. He was born the same year or sorry, the year after my dad. He jokes that his year (laughs) would have scared any uh, his birthday would have scared any really fundamentalist parent because it was one what is it? it was uh six one six 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 <laughs> i love that okay <laughs> so he goes to these things pretty regularly and he does a lot of freelance cgi work all the early cgi work pre toy story pre veggie tales was very static there wasn't any stretch and that literally was was one of the key words there like uh, if you think about like a ball bouncing in like a uh like warner brothers movie or something like that like the thing contracts 
at a certain point and it expands and it, and it reacts, you know, the way a bouncing ball would in real life. Mm-hmm. CGI didn't have the capability to have that stretchiness, that elasticity. So all the early stuff that was like poorly done, but that's why when you see like really cheap CGI, it's like the ball bouncing and it's a perfect shape the whole time. It looks clunky. Uh, James Lasseter's approach to fixing this was uh, animating things like a metal lamp. Mm. Right. That's why the Pixar, uh, you know, image is that little lamp, because the first CGI short he made was a metal lamp hopping because that didn't need any bounce to move realistically. Then around the late 80s, about 89, 90, there was an advance in CGI technology, which I know we're getting into like the weeds here with this stuff, but I I kind of want to talk about what Vischer did that was visionary. This uh, particular kind of software move came out um, called the uh, Lattice Dynamics. And basically what it meant was you place an object inside this three-dimensional lattice and then you move the points of that lattice rather than the points of the object that you're moving so think of it like a bunch of squares and you move those squares around and then the shape follows those squares okay visher looked at this technology and said well this is the way we start animating right like we just put our objects in this thing and we use the lattice to start moving things Uh, He was very right. That is the the beginnings of the CGI uh, tech. The problem was he could only animate simple shapes. Oh, okay. He kind of racked his brain and said, "Okay, well, what sort of simple character can I create? And we get the beginning of VeggieTales. Teddy, do you want to know what the first character he ever animated was? Would it be Bob? It was a chocolate candy bar. Oh, I'm assuming um, said chocolate candy bar was cut from VeggieTales. Mr. Candy Bar, as Vischer calls him, <laughs> was originally animated to, you know, be a simple like rectangular shape that could teach moral lessons. OK, uh, he set up a little test run for this uh, and his wife came in and watched because, you know, he, you know, talked to his wife about all these things. But her first words out of her mouth were you know mothers are going to hate if you endear <laughs> their children to candy, right? Right. <laughs> Takes a woman, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, really. Uh, in fact, there's... This is a terrible idea. <laughs> we're going to get to his mother's influence on the direction of the show in a minute, but uh, Vischer's wife basically said not to be hyperbolic, but like, you're going to make kids want candy more. And that's actually going to be a problem in your marketing. That's going to be a problem in your like presentation. That's such a real thing. Like when I was a kid and would watch Wallace and Gromit, I don't know if you know who they are. Wallace yeah. and Gromit. Yeah. All I ever wanted afterwards was the cheese and saltines, even though that's a weird combination kind oh of. What is it about? Okay. Tangent here, but this is a necessary tangent. What is it about animated food that looks delicious? It always looks so delicious. You know, I the Aristocats. Yes. Yeah. Okay. The milk. The, yes. The like creme milk. de la creme de la Edgar. I yes. just desperately wanted to drink that. Yes. I don't even like milk and it looks so freaking delicious. So good. Absolutely. Like, whatever the fuck those crackers were. <laughs> yes. They, like, they, they made crackers. Ritz look 
terrible. And Ritz are the best cracker. Yes, yes. And like um, Cinderella, the mice with the cheese. Yes. Book. I mean, we're talking like that. Well, that was at a fancy charcuterie board. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, so she's actually on to something with this advice. You know, absolutely. Kids, what, uh, you kids would have wanted the Hershey bars. And this kind of connects to my own memory of Veggie Tales. I found out about Veggie Tales for the very first time because it was recommended to my parents from our pediatrician. <laughs> because my little brother has autism and he had a very, very limited palate, which is normal for kids, his, you know, kids, his age at that, at, at the stage he was in. And he basically only ate applesauce and peanut butter. And my doctor was like, you know, what could get him to may- eat, maybe eat vegetables? This show called Veggie Tales. This, wow. totally, this totally backfired because my brother then thought vegetables had feelings and then he didn't want to eat them because of that. But basically the idea is, you know, kids will eat vegetables. <laughs> In Phil Vischer's memoir, which is called Me, Myself and Bob, it's an interesting read. He talks about how he met with a parent who said, I love what you did. It's wonderful. But now I need to like cut up vegetables for dinner when my children are not in the room. She said yeah. she had to wrestle away a cucumber from her child and take it into the other room to cut it while the child wept. Yes. Yeah, I can see that happening. And if you think about it, there is a difference between Veggie Tales and like the examples we were talking about of the those were food products that the characters were enjoying. They weren't the characters themselves. Yeah. You know, the cheese wasn't a character. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit of a gamble in terms of like, will this create like great intrigue around vegetables and kids will actually be eating them as a vegetarian? I love that concept, mm-hmm. but I could also see it like with the, you know, in the case of my little brother, it totally swinging the other direction and you have your kid crying. I can't eat Bob or, you know, whatever. Yeah. So absolutely. And, and there's, uh, <laughs> I was starting to do some research there was this really uh, funny BuzzFeed article that was trying to figure out whether or not the vegetables in the show were cannibals because there are images of them eating salads. Right. I remember that. <laughs> I was like, this got dark so fast. So fast. So um, if by some chance you're listening to this and you're one of the few people who don't know what Veggie Tales is, it's talking vegetables, just so we're clear. Yeah, we sort of got into the inception of VeggieTales a little bit ahead of time. But what are some salient observations about what VeggieTales is? How do you remember the ethos and purpose of VeggieTales? Okay, so my I'm coming into this a little bit fresh because VeggieTales actually wasn't a super important show for me, even though it was always humming around in the background because kids loved it so much. I was never a big fan of animation as a kid. Shocking. (laughs) Very shocking that I would be a serious kid who wouldn't gravitate to this stuff. Um, My parents always joke that I used to say real people. I want the real people on the TV. So freaking weird. But anyway, so I watched VeggieTales because of my little brother and because they showed it in kids church and stuff. But it wasn't super important to me. But this is what I remember. So I remember the episodes being kind of short, like maybe half an hour or something like that. Um, half an hour. VeggieTales. Okay. Yeah, half an hour. It's literally in the theme song. And then I remember in my brain, when I think about VeggieTales, I think of a kind of split in terms of content, like thematic split. So we have these kind of broader moral issues, almost like don't be scared, show forgiveness, be kind to others. And then 
The other half being more biblical narratives, specific biblical Mm -hmm. narratives. So I remember, you know, everything from a little skit on love your enemies. Then the second half of the episode would be like the wall of Jericho or like a really, really specific Bible story. Yeah. And I guess the just the takeaway was that it was kind of instilling Christian values, but also knowledge of Christian actual scripture. Yeah, I think that's a very good description of the goal of VeggieTales. I'll also offer a little bit of a caveat. I kind of forget how intensely VeggieTales added to my family lexicon. My family was always the the family that uh, spoke to each other in like movie quotes. I joke with my students that like one time uh, my family and I watched The Princess Bride with the sound off and we all just took turns like voicing the different characters. God, I hate The Princess Bride, but we don't have to get into that. We physically <laughs> cannot get into that because we'd have to stop being friends. Okay. Uh, it's not my favorite comedy of all time, but it is, I think, one of the best. And mm-hmm. I don't understand how you, such a de- devotee of When Harry Met Sally, don't like the other Rob Reiner masterpiece. Okay, well, anyway, so I'm assuming you're telling this story because your family quoted VeggieTales all the time. Fine, I will stick to the planned program here. But this is not over. Is my hairbrush. Right. So my family quoted uh, VeggieTales so much to the point where, and this is a quote from the very first episode that I think is very weird. And we'll get to why I think it's weird. Whenever my family like asks somebody for help, the other person who was asked for help will come up and say, hi, my name is Bob and I'm a tomato and I'm here to help. Oh, there are so many jokes that just have lived on in the lexicon of my family's like quoting from VeggieTales. It's fascinating. So I, I sort of have a very different relationship to it than you. But needless to say, it was childhood forming for a lot of kids. Exactly. You know, it's yeah. uh Visher always wanted to be the next Walt Disney, mm. right? His dream was to have a sort of animation empire in the same way that that Disney did, mm. in the way that um, the the Warner Brothers did with you know the Looney Tunes. You said that there was this tone of teaching kids like Christian morals and Christian knowledge, right? Yeah. Visher actually had a bit of a an existential crisis after the fact and mm. asked, wait, did I just teach kids? This is his quote. Did I teach kids just how to act Christianly, but not teach them Christianity? Oh, that went a different direction. I thought you were going to say he like left the faith and now has all this, you know, sort of ambivalence about what he taught kids about scripture. But it's actually even it's more the opposite. It's like I didn't teach maybe enough. Like I didn't teach enough biblical truth. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And you're also right that he's not necessarily somebody that real Christian crowds latch on to anymore. Like in a Joshua Harris kind of way or kind of. So he went through a bit of like a divorce from mainline evangelicalism in the late teens. Okay. No surprise with the advent of Donald Trump and Trumpism. He kind of famously split ways with some big Christian names. Uh, He currently has a like deconstruction style podcast with Sky Jatani, who um, I don't know if Sky is still on the, the podcast anymore, but it, it's very much a like Pete ends, you know, uh, early Josh Harris deconstruction style 
deconstruction podcast where it's like, I still want to hold on to the Christianity, but I need to do it differently. Mm. And he's a big proponent of like, if you do Christianity correctly, then you will oppose these weird conservative talking points. Interesting. Okay. He's more on the side of like leftist Christianity Mm. now. Okay. Okay. Spinning this back to VeggieTales. Vischer creates this thing. He's innovative with the technology at hand. Okay. And I think that's where VeggieTales is such a novel and groundbreaking piece of entertainment. Big Idea Productions, that's the production company that Vischer founded, was at one point the largest animation studio that was not Disney. That's wild to me because... I think, uh, you know, I guess in my head, VeggieTales kind of lives on still as a sort of phenomenon of a subculture, mm-hmm. you know, like there's this group of people, these religious folk who need a cartoon for their kids that can replace Disney. Right. But mm-hmm. I don't think of VeggieTales or even the Big Idea Productions as even comparable to Disney in terms of popularity. I think of it as much more of an isolated community, you know, in, a, in an isolated community. So this is something I did not realize. Mm-hmm. It, does that just speak to the sheer number of Christians at the time? Or was there crossover with the secular world also enjoying VeggieTales? But how did these number, how did this number and this popularity happen? It's a really great question. Uh, the short answer is, I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the, the short answer is there's so many like different factors. Okay. Here's what I think are the most salient, most worth talking about at the moment. First is, like I said, the first VeggieTales episode came out a year before Toy Story. Mm. Right. So while John Lasseter and the guys at Pixar, which was then owned at that time, it was actually owned by Steve Jobs. I don't know if you knew that. No, I did not. Yeah. Yeah. When when Jobs left Apple or was kicked, I forget the whole like dynamics, but he ended up buying Pixar as like a really risky investment. Wow. And that's part of the reason that Pixar had the cash flow to get Toy Story started. Okay. While Lasseter and his guys are innovating how the technology works and what the technology is available, Vischer is sort of on the other side of it going, well, this is the technology we have. So how do we make this work? Mm. And he was sort of first to the table with an offering. So where you have Lucas and Lucas, you know, George Lucas and Lucasfilm doing things like, you know, integrating real life, like like live action stuff with CGI uh, and innovating that end of things. You then have sort of the other part of the triangle being Lasseter and Pixar. And then this space is here's what exists. Let's innovate with what exists, which is a fascinating kind of commentary on Christian innovation, Mm. right? Like there's this kind of running joke that whatever is happening, Christians are 10 years behind. Yeah. Right. Like America with Canada and Europe or something. Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, (laughs) my partner always says uh, America is a petulant teenager on the face of the world. It's kind of how Christian art has always been. Yeah. We're a little bit behind, you know, the Jesus movement of music that we talked about Right. Started as like mainstream music was moving away from folk rock. Yeah. Psychedelic rock. And so then as the world was like getting different types of rock, you started to have like Striper and all that. Anyway, 
without getting back into that conversation. It makes, it makes sense though. Cause it's like, they kind of waited out to see how much does the world actually like this and then sort of have to swallow, you know, their, their pride and, and then be like, okay, I guess this is our next witnessing tool. Right. I mean, that's sort of what's happening is that they're kind of waiting to see, you know, what is the, what is the kind of cultural fascination and how can we reappropriate it? Right. For our sort of purposes. And I think the thing that made VeggieTales so popular related to this is Vischer didn't do that so much, mm. right? Vischer saw what existed and tried to innovate with what existed, make something new with his skill set, right? So again, he's using what already exists, but what already exists is so lackluster that his, ex- that his like genuinely creative efforts were novel. The innovations that Pixar made in creating Toy Story were like earth shattering, right? So if you hold VeggieTales and Vicious innovations up against what existed at the time, it's incredible. Mm. If you hold it up to what Pixar is doing. Well, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So you sort of get it like relative to what existed. It's amazing. Yeah. And. And and it was something that was so far ahead of anything that the Christian world proper would accept mm-hmm. that it was essentially the Christian Pixar yeah. in that little vacuum of space. So that's a, a short version of like why it was so talked about. Vischer was in this space, the same space as Lucas and Lasseter and the other innovators in the field. He just went a different direction. Okay. And really... Very few people, aside from those big names, even knew what was happening, Mm. you know, with with what was coming down the pike with Pixar. So in children's animation at large, Vizier is a bit of a visionary. He just gets eclipsed by the people who were doing bigger and better things, Mm -hmm. you know. So that actually leads us back to why vegetables, right? We talked about, you know, wanting to shift from the uh, uh, candy bar idea, you know, he says basically this, the, the vegetable thing wasn't part of a particular agenda. It was just making easily animated faces, uh, 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 figures. What I, mean. mm-hmm. I mentioned that his mother was part of this equation. His mother's an interesting character. I don't know too much about her, except that she has a PhD hmm. in Christian education. Okay. Right. So anytime people talk about the PhDs that other people have, I think about what we're experiencing and how that translates to that field. Mm. Can you imagine what a PhD in Christian education would require? No, really. Yeah, I I can't either. I guess. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking about what an education doctorate degree is, you know, a lot of of stuff about pedagogy. So I guess it would just be centering Christianity in discussions of pedagogy, I guess. I would assume that. I mean, you went to a Bible college. You tell me what this is. The Bible college I went to didn't have a education degree. Okay. They had what they called children's ministry and adult ministry and the courses did abut education, right? They were adjacent to the education conversation, but they were ultimately about teaching the Bible, teaching Christianity and Mm. that sort of thing. In my time teaching at a Bible college, I met a few people who were doing this sort of study. 
And it really is just like education studies filtered through. But how does this relate to the Bible? Can we prove this through biblical texts or does this model, you know, Christianity and historically ground it? Like it's it's sort of that classic. I bring up Vischer's mother and her Christian education Ph.D., Because when he posed the idea to her and he said, I want to make children's programming, how do you suggest I do some of these things? Are there anything that I'm doing that I could do differently? Mm. Anything I should look out for? So he asked for her advice on that. She gave him two ground rules. Four, as Vischer pitched it to his mother, a children's show that wanted to teach Christianity and Christian morals through vegetables. Had a rule number one was thou shalt not, (laughs) thou shalt not depict a Jesus as a vegetable that's fair yeah that's fair rule number two no go ahead go ahead i would no. i was what you saw in my face was just sort of trying to think back through my veggie tales experience thinking did jesus ever show up in veggie tales and the answer is he did not he there was not. never a jesus ah that's interesting number two slightly more ridiculous than Jesus isn't a vegetable. You cannot imply, and I wrote it down so that I get it right, you cannot imply that vegetables can have redemptive relationships with God. (laughs) So basically there was like a terms and conditions at the end where you have to be like, guys, though, vegetables don't have souls. Yes. That the thing? So, okay. So do you Uh, remember Bob the Tomatoes sign off? At the end of every episode? Oh, as soon as you start saying it, I'm going to remember it. God made you special and he loves you very very much. much. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Bill Vischer rewrote that from God loves us. Oh, rather than me. Yeah. First of all, what kind of horror world is this where we're becoming attached to these things that don't have souls and explicitly acknowledge the fact that we have redemptive relationships with God, know that God exists and a redemption relationship can be had and ought to be had, but cannot attain it itself. Mm. This is like some weird sci-fi horror nonsense where like the robot understands that consciousness exists, but cannot attain consciousness, but encourages acts of (laughs) self-autonomy. Like, oh my goodness. Okay. So basically they are just the messengers, but they have no value to God. Yes. Okay. Okay. And no Jesus in the, is there a God in Veggie Tales? There is, there is not. There. There's not. Okay. No. So there's, it's really just playing out the biblical stories that don't feature the literal Christ figure, right? There are no Veggie Tales episodes about New Testament Bible oh, stories. Interesting. Okay. They are all all the ones that are Bible stories are Old Testament. OK, that's really interesting. I think if I would have thought that one through. I would have been like the stories in the Old Testament are just more interesting for this kind of, you know, genre. Yeah, they're generally right. more mythic. They're yeah. generally more uh, uh, compelling in a sense of like fr- from that's, a narrative perspective. They're also just. Nuts. Yeah. And they're also the ones that more often than not get spun as children's stories. Right. As horrifying as the story of Noah's Ark is, <laughs> it's a kid's story, right? It's the first I, thing. That's my, that was my second thought was like, that, I mean, this irony is, oh, you're right. This irony is always present in so many kids, Christ, Christian kids material, which is that, you know, on one hand, Old Testament stories make such better, make these products much better. They're also simultaneously so much more inappropriate. You know? 
Um, they're so grim. <laughs> so grim. Like Noah's Ark starts with, hey, listen, buddy, I'm going to murder everyone because right. I don't like them very much. So if you want to be saved, do some manual labor for a while. I, I remember being a little kid, so little that when I read the word plagues in Exodus, I read it as pelages because I could barely read. This is how young I am. Right. Mm-hmm. And I remember the teacher giving the lesson about the plagues and to make it more interactive threw out objects related to each of the plagues. So she threw little like plastic flies at us. You know, I, I say that just to emphasize some of the some of these stories are so dark, but they're also so entertaining and they make for great entertainment. Like, yeah. it's well, just, I mean, think about the like the Prince of Egypt. Yes. was the movie that put DreamWorks on the map. Right. But there's like three instances of infanticide. Right. What? Yeah. Yeah. There's so much murder in the Old Testament. And we're going to even probably talk about this in the episode that you're featuring. The Christian entertainment has to toe such a weird line between conveying the story accurately, but also still couching it in terms and, and rhetoric that won't completely freak kids out. Right. Let me think about um, kind of children's entertainment at large. There's this consistent clamor and it, it's been happening for decades, right? I remember it about Disney when I was homeschool, you know, back in the early 90s, where like there's this thing that like secular entertainment is indoctrinating children into a particular ideology or agenda. OK, but just like you said, there's this fine line that Christian children's entertainment walks in order to give off specific philosophical and what they would say theological ideas, but they need to warp their stories to do it. They can't even adhere on a level of like biblical accuracy Mm -hmm. to the story because it would undercut the message. So we're sacrificing fealty to the text for the agenda, which Mm -hmm. is the definition of indoctrination. And propaganda, whereas I see these other, you know, things like Disney and Pixar and DreamWorks, they're on some level just trying to tell a good story using things that society deems normal. Yeah, it's that difference between I, I'm not going to sit here and say that children's media in the world at large doesn't have ideology. Oh, that's right? perfectly I mean, fair and correct. Yes. yes, yes. I mean, to think that we're the only or we were the only ones doing it, that the world doesn't also have an I the world, you know, the non-Christian yeah. world isn't also conveying an ideology would be completely unfair and just wrong. You know, we we know this. It's, it's absolutely the air, the air you breathe. Right. The ideology um, is everywhere. It doesn't. Escape. Yeah. Yeah. Everywhere, everything. We're constantly teaching our children things, even when we don't think we're teaching them anything. There's, you know, but there is a clearer, more defined intent that is driving, I think, Christian media. Well, not think. There is a clear intent driving Christian media and a clear, probably even goal, you know, Mm -hmm. which is um, getting children to to believe these things. You know, there's there's something that, about Christian media that's always been a little uncomfortable to me in the sense of it was framed as this is what replaces other media. And we do this so that you don't hear the other things and get confused. 
right? Mm. I mean, that's indoctrination. <laughs> it's like we are the idea of this media is usually not, at least in my culture anyway, people didn't like engage in, in Christian media to an equal amount that they engaged in secular media. They re- used it primarily as a replacement for secular mm. media. So the idea was that, you know, we can entrap kids in a message um, and make sure that they don't have the time for the energy to interest in what the other the other side is saying. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just purely like this is fun stuff. It was this is a way to keep you from other things that might change your mind or make you think differently or whatever. So I just repeated what you said, but you know, I mean, no, no, I think you expanded on it. I, I, I think that's you've described why we're doing this thing, right? Yeah. Again. You described why we're doing this podcast. It wasn't this is our side and the world's media is the other side. It was our media helped keep you in the fold because everything outside of the fence is a danger. Mm-hmm. And as yeah. soon as you start entertaining what's outside the fence, that's when you could get lost. Right. A lot of that sheep language. Right. Yeah. The slippery slope sort of. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It starts, it starts with a kid's show and then you're watching teen shows. Then you're listening to secular music, you know, that sort of logic, right? Yeah. Listen to Nirvana, you'll end up just like Kurt Cobain. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, yeah, you watch these things, you do these things, it'll cause harm. When, when I was at Bible college, there was an, an on the books rule that said you couldn't watch R-rated movies during the week and you couldn't listen to non-Christian music on campus. So Saturday and Sunday, all bets are off? I don't. What? Uh, yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what is fascinating about VeggieTale is, and this kind of goes along with Vischer's uh, uh, post hoc comment that, like, he taught them how to behave Christianly and not Christianity, which I think has a little bit of that uh, regret that you mentioned might be the source of it. Most of the episodes of veggie tales were not bible stories more than half were just stories okay so the just so we're clear so the biblical stories just for our audience would be the reenactment with vegetables of yes. true bible stories from the scriptures right daniel and the lion yes. and the coat of many colors whatever and then they also ha- and then the other stories were just the vegetables as themselves themselves so like junior was a teenage boy the asparagus he was a teenage boy or like a kid he was a teenager or kid maybe he's five he says he's five oh in the first episode he says he's five Okay. okay so yeah so let me just give you a quick rundown of like the titles of some of the early episodes so you can sort of see what i'm talking about okay you are 100% correct. The, the Bible story episodes are retellings of biblical narratives with vegetables. The other episodes are just narratives with vegetable characters where they are themselves or they are like themselves. There's a really weird meta thing where like a lot of the uh, set design for some of the episodes was just poorly constructed stage play sets on top of the counter that most of the episodes happened on. So it was this weird meta thing where it was like, oh, this is this episode features Junior Asparagus as David. Right. So it's like a character playing a character. And so right. there's 
it's fascinating from like weirdly postmodern of them right i know i was saying it's kind of meta or not meta um it, there's something yeah yeah there's something structurally interesting about this yeah yeah and and we can get into this when we when we do the episode but like there's a framing narrative attached to every episode right, so there's right. the framing narrative which is meta in and of itself there's the self-referentiality there's the talking to the viewer directly it's got a lot of fascinating postmodern textual qualities mm-hmm. yeah our professors would be so proud wouldn't they so proud of us so proud what were we where would you put though so there's actually a third type of narrative style in my in my head when i think about veggie tales the biblical narratives the stories of their lives and then this weird like subcategory that is pure silly songs mm. How popular? I mean, I feel like those are ones people really remember. Like the there's a song called Barbara Manatee. Manatee. There's a song. I was called- gonna say that sounds like a person's name. Manatee. Barbara. <laughs> Barbara Manatee. Manatee. Um, where is my hairbrush? Mm-hmm. Which is just the cucumber. Who the water buffalo that. song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, did you come up like? Did you read anything about that in your research? Like, why they incorporated that? Because believe it or not, I had diehards. It, I had people in my church who were diehards enough that they thought those portions of Veggie Tales were quote unnecessary and like diluted the Christian message. Diluted the Christian message. Yeah. And in my head right now, I'm thinking of a specific person who who would say this. Like, this was a real thing people said. Because there is an obvious difference, right, between those sort of songs and then the like biblical stories and the morality stories, you know, um, and I didn't know if there was something there about him trying to bring like even a greater levity to it, trying to pull in, you know, maybe kids in the secular world because they're just kind of goofy. You know, I, I wasn't sure. I, you know, and it's fine if you don't have an answer. I just in my head, there's just like there's three sort of categories that make up a typical Veggie Tales episode. And at some point they had that weird kind of like two minute hairbrush song or whatever. So basically I'm just wondering if, if that was an, if that was something intentional, if there was a meaning behind that, if he sort of strategically placed those little songs or if it just kind of evolved organically. Yeah, it sort of evolved organically. Um, the, the most I could find about it um uh phil visher and the rest of the team needed to have sort of a diverse display of what their characters could do what their animation style and their storytelling techniques could do so the first episode the one we're going to talk about today where's god when i'm so scared features a silly song and so it was just supposed to be like a filler piece and in the second episode there actually is no silly song with larry hmm but there was actually like vocal complaints that the segment went away. They never intended it to be a regular thing. Oh, but because okay. there was sort of like a demand for it. It came back. Got it. Visher didn't plan on it being something that continued, but there mm. was just desire for it, which is very strange that you're getting that it diluted. Does, does this complaint come with like a specific like why or how it diluted? You know, I mean, the people I'm thinking of right now are are they're 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 a particular style of Christians. But, you know, I just remember, I guess I I guess a fair way of saying it is I remember the conversations surrounding Veggie Tales, sometimes addressing 
you know, do we need these silly songs or the parents saying the silly songs are my least favorite or, you know, they should stick to the Bible stories, that kind of stuff. So I always just wondered, but that's interesting because it's clearly not, you know, those few crazies, you know, clearly are not the majority if they had such a demand to continue it, which, you know, I'm glad they did because I think those are actually some of the like kind of cutest endearing parts of VeggieTales. Uh, like they're the thing that still sticks with me. I still get them stuck in my head. You mm-hmm. know, anytime I lose my hairbrush, forget it. I'm in my childhood already. Yeah. <laughs> so this leads us to the last uh, thing I want to talk about before we get to the text. The subject matter, like we're talking about the episodes that happen, these individual narratives. Then there's the silly songs and then there's the retelling of Bible stories. Vischer didn't want to do Bible stories originally. Mm. Uh, I'm going to read from his biography, Me, Myself and Bob. He did Bob's voice, correct? He did a lot of voices. but Yes, Bob. Yeah. He actually said, so this is like an insider thing. If you know VeggieTales, this will matter. And if you don't know VeggieTales, this won't matter. He actually said that of all the characters whose voices he did and all he wrote for, Dr. Archibald was the one that was most like himself. (laughs) That's cute. (laughs) What would the stories be like? How would they teach? I went over to Mike. Mike is the other co-creator with him. I went over to Mike's apartment to brainstorm. I'd already thought of doing a spoof of The Grapes of Wrath, starring a bunch of really cranky grapes. Mike added Bridge Over Pumpkin Pie, Lime and Punishment, and War and Peaches to the list. We could spoof classic literature. That'd be funny. Neither of us seemed to notice at the time that everything on our list featured fruit, not vegetables, or that, botanically speaking, our two lead characters were also, in fact, fruits. And Mike is the one that suggested VeggieTales as a title. (laughs) I want to point that out just because that's all like doing retellings of classic literature right? and punning off of this uh, canon outside of the biblical text. That doesn't jive with at least the earliest memories of VeggieTales. It does, however, with later, uh, way after I stopped watching VeggieTales, there were a few VeggieTales that did that same sort of thing. Like they did a spoof of Lord of the Rings called Lord of the Beans. Uh, they did an episode called The Wonderful Wizard of Haas. Sheer Luck Holmes and the Golden Ruler. Here's a, here's a complicated one for you. Tomato Sawyer and Huckleberry Larry's Big River Rescue. <laughs> Talk about editing around details to make something more palpable. Yes, yes. Uh, two other uh, ones that are uh, notable. Robin Good and his not so merry men and the League of Incredible Vegetables. Uh, There's just a really interesting layer of repackaging popular or compelling stories through this venue. Again, a very postmodern technique. Mm -hmm. Right. It's that idea of the the reappropriation of the reallocation of a narrative through a new venue in order to give it new meaning. Right. Teddy, now that we've watched the first episode of VeggieTales, do you have any like gut reactions to the structure or content of this episode that might want to start us off? 
So I would say my main observation is kind of something we already touched on, which is that when I watched it last night, I completely remembered the junior song, God is Bigger Than the Boogeyman. I remembered mm-hmm. all that. Thought, Still thought it was pretty endearing. But then, you know, the other half of the episode is the Daniel and the Lion's Den story, which for, you know, those of you who have been away from the church for a while, you know, these men know that Daniel prays to God. So they convince the king. I think I'm getting this right. They convince the king to make it against like the law, right? A new law that you had to pray Mm -hmm. that you couldn't pray. Daniel says, no way. I'm still praying to God. So then um, he's sentenced to death (laughs) um, by being thrown into the lion's den. God awards his rewards his faith by making the lions not harm him. And then in the morning, he's taken out of the lion's den. And it's like God's existence is is validated by the people who are like, oh, my God, he saved Daniel. So the vegetables act this out. You're reading an important part. What? That once Daniel's God is validated by him not dying. Right. They. He has them sent the other ones sent into the lion's den. Right. 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 So he murders the people that try to murder him. Yes. So the vegetables act this out. And it's in this episode, presumably, because it's broadly about fear and that Daniel wasn't afraid. He trusted God that when he got down into said lion's den, that he wasn't going to be, you know, murdered. Mm -hmm. Um, And but I think watching this last night, it had been a while since I had thought about the biblical narratives. And now that I have some distance from it, it felt a little shocking to me. You know, this idea of this story being given to children. There's this little part where they when they first throw him into the lion's den, the like pe- the, the vegetables who threw him in are like joking about like the lions going after him. And they're like laughing and giggling as they're walking away. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like about this is like a <laughs> they're laughing about murder. <laughs> <laughs> They're laughing yeah. about a horrible, torturous death that was real. And as a kid, it just doesn't really register for you when you're in this culture. And now looking back on it, I'm like, wow, we were like chuckling about people being devoured in lion's death. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And yeah. A lot of children's media, I think, is maybe emotionally, you know, I think involves more emotional intelligence than we should ask of kids. Like I'm, I'm, we're the Fox and the Hound era. Right. So, <laughs> you know, but this is like pretty explicit violence. So yeah, not to beat a dead horse. Um, but I, I feel like that was the thing that really was the most evident to me rewatching this mm-hmm. was the explicit nature of, of some of the content and how dark and heavy a lot of this is as soon as you just scratch beneath the surface of like the cuteness. Mm-hmm. Well, and again, I, I, yeah, I love that you said that. I, I think that's a great focus here. And it's something I think we can actually see in the first short as well. So I want to, I want to touch on that. Yeah. I sort of dismissed that, but I'm no, sure no, no, that- no, that's fine. I, I like that you jumped right to that point because that's, that was my major uh, comment about that second piece is like, yeah, it's catchy as hell. Mm-hmm. It's silly. It's entertaining, but also like how much awareness are we taking for granted or how much lack of awareness are we taking for granted from kids? Mm -hmm. Again, we've watched someone change the laws, which again, irony, thy name is Christianity. We watch someone change the laws so that their 
religious and political enemy would be put to death under said laws. That's crazy. That is insane that we just slap a veneer of silliness onto something Mm -hmm. and and hope that that's enough. I don't know. I, I can't say it better than you did. It's kind of dark. Yeah. Yeah. And I had all the Bible stories, you know, like the big books of the Bible stories Mm -hmm. as a kid. And I remember them, some of them being really brutal, you know, God killing all the infants, the flood, like you already referenced the Job story is horrendous, you know, but there's something about it being reenacted by vegetables in such a clearly like light and kind of jovial tone that feels particularly unsettling now that I have the distance from it. And I'm like, oh my gosh. I don't know. Two thoughts about that. The first is uh, Ed the Esther story came to mind too. Mm. Because like the opening of that, like that story, and it's and it's a veggie tale story. They retell the Esther story. That one and, and David and Bathsheba. Oh, right. They retell both of those. Those stories are stories of sexual violence and genocide. Right. Like the opening of Queen Esther is the king saying to his wife, come out here and sexually entertain me and my friends. Mm-hmm. And then when she doesn't, he kills her. Right. And we decided to retell that story where the king looks for a new sex slave. My God. With vegetables. <laughs> and then the, the I, I'm vividly remembering King George and the ducky is the, the Lord. Uh, the, sorry, is the um, the veggie tales retelling of King David. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. It's called King George and the Ducky. So they King George it so that they can make it in a, you know, e- you know, uh, English setting. Mm-hmm. The king sees somebody, Junior Asparagus playing David or playing, playing the husband role, playing with a rubber ducky in his bathtub. Mm. So they, they took out the I saw a naked lady and changed it to I saw a little kid bathing with his duck. Oh, my God. And so he sends him to the Great Pie War and the guy comes back. Junior comes back with PTSD. The point where he's non-functioning. Naturally. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Because he wanted to. And again, King George has a wall of rubber duckies. We are only putting the thinnest plastic veneer over this horrifying story. Yeah. And, you know. I don't know if I'm going to be able to articulate this right, but this is interesting to me that, okay, so on one hand, we're saying the Old Testament stories are more kind of ripe for entertainment, I would say. Yeah, yeah, they're they're, they're more ripe for entertainment. They also, though, are, I think, in terms of getting people to be on board with the Christian God, riskier, right, than New Testament stories. That's a really great point. It feels like just below the surface is those really big questions. Why would God ask someone of this? Why is God doing this? This actually seems kind of cruel. Is this really a compassionate, sovereign God? Questions that arguably are like for a lot of people, what lead them to atheism? You know, these stories are the stories that initiate those questions. When I think about my issues with the Christian God figure, the majority of them are from the old are are kind of provoked the most from the Old Testament. We could get into a bigger conversation of like, why did Christ have to die? But there's so much more, I think, explicit and accessible. Those questions are so much more explicit 
you know, in these stories where in a lot of them, it just seems like God's actually being quite petty and cruel. So on one hand, it's like, yes, they're more entertaining, but it also feels like they're riskier in the sense of all it would take, you know, is a little piercing. And the interesting thing is most of the time it doesn't happen. Like it took us, what, a de- decades to, to actually ask those questions. Does, that, does this make sense? The- oh my gosh, you're making so much sense. I love it. And you're right in line with actually my major critique of the first half of the episode too. It all okay. fall, it falls, in, falls into place nicely. My own story of like deconstructing and, and coming to the place that I am is very similar, right? It started with this, okay, well... God seems really terrible in the Old Testament (laughs) and like asking questions about, well, hang on. I have to hold the idea of loving and hell Mm -hmm. in my head at the same time. Right. I have to hold the idea of don't murder unless God says so. Mm -hmm. And so my like, I'd say probably the two biggest questions that started my deconstruction and my shift away from the Christian God would be the, the idea of hell. And looking for ways to understand violence as redemptive. Yeah. And violence sometimes also at the hand of God himself. Right. Right. So there's like the God excusing or not intervening in violence between us human beings. That is hard enough to kind of stomach. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, my my deconstruction, I think, really happened in college as a sociology major, just reading about global these global atrocities and thinking. God helps people in my church get over a cold, but not this. Right. So there's all of that. But then there's the like God sanctioned violence, Mm -hmm. which is in arguably like three quarters of the stories that show up in Christian narrative, Christian narratives. They're the hardest ones because you're like, wow, this God who loves me is sitting around with Satan, basically playing like a kind of game of. Okay, but go kill his, you know, go go kill his family and we'll see if he still follows. You know, this is the God who loves me. Let's use this as like a quick turn into the text of the first story. The first story is Where's God and I'm Scared? That's the that's the first story is Where's God and I'm Scared. It's sort of like an album, right? Like there's the title story and then there's the B-side. Right. So the Daniel story that we've already kind of talked about is the B-side. It's set up by a framing narrative, then a first narrative, and then we get to the Daniel story. So the framing narrative is Bob and Larry standing on a kitchen counter. They open with, I'm Bob and I'm Larry, and we're here to answer your questions. That's, that's what they say. That's, the, that's their claimed goal is to answer your questions. Okay. I have many. <laughs> I would like you to read the first letter that they read from a listener. Now, I, I say first, not because there's multiple in this episode, but because this is a, an inciting conceit in many of the early VeggieTales episodes. They would say, we have a le- letter from a viewer. Mm. And they ask us these questions. So this letter, according to Bob, comes from Lucy Anderson of Phoenix, Arizona. That's how he says it. What do you want to bet Lucy doesn't exist? But well, okay. Okay. We've already discussed <laughs> how Rebecca St. James and hey, they all do like, this. This is a standard move. Here is this person that has a problem. Right, right. Lucy, if you're out there, girl, I'm sorry. Maybe you're real. I hope you're doing I hope okay. you're doing all right. I hope you've investigated <laughs> the closet issue. 
Okay. Okay. Here it is. You are reading. Here's here's Lucy's letter. Lucy's letter to Bob and Larry. Okay. Dear Bob and Larry, I am six years old. Sometimes I think there are monsters in my closet. That makes me real scared. Can you help me? What do you want to bet Lucy's like a total horror fanatic now? Like, oh my God. I was going to say, you wrote this letter, right? You (laughs) have now become. That's it. I'm coming clean. I'm Lucy. (laughs) Okay. So this letter by potentially Lucy Anderson, who is six years old, is she's scared that there are monsters in her closet. And then, then what advice do they give? Larry responds to this by saying, you know, I was scared the other day. I thought there were monsters in my closet. It was just my bunny slippers. <laughs> it's funny. It's just, I, I will say I genuinely laugh at a lot of the jokes in this episode. Yeah. I don't know if it's my nostalgia, my like hope that this is whatever, but I genuinely thought some of the jokes and the narrative moves were compelling, you know, in an entertaining kind of way. Bob says, well, first check to see if it's your bunny slippers. Then watch this movie. That's the move. I mean, I, I like the um, check to make sure it's not the bunny slippers. You know, there's a that's there's a sort of realist approach there. That's like your brain's probably just playing tricks on you. You know, like I, I like that. I, like I that. do, too. And we're actually going to see it come up later at the end of the episode that they walk this line between here's the pragmatic logical approach right but also make sure you're prayed up (laughs) cover all your bases cover your bases so we move to a story we move to the interior story of the framing there which opens with again layers play within a play within a play Mm -hmm. junior is watching a movie called tales from the crisper brilliant junior is an asparagus junior is an asparagus Junior's watching basically what's called Franken celery. It's a okay. spinoff of Frankenstein. It's a okay. giant celery with bolts in the side of his head. All you STEM people are going to have to tell me what happens if you electrocute celery because <laughs> his mom says it's time to go to bed. And he says, I have four more minutes. First of all, what kid asks for more time in four minute increment? That's weird. Right. Am I, am I crazy? You know, kids are surprisingly clever. Maybe maybe he deep down knows if he just asks for more time, he's not going to get it. And five is too much. So four sort of seems safe. I can see kids kind of doing something like that. But anyway, okay, fine. I am just crazy. The mom then says, no, it's time for bed. Besides, I think this show is too scary for you. Very 90s, very 90s Christian mom. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. after the fact, mom. Your kid's been watching this show for how long? At the very least, eight minutes. He needs to learn his lesson. He goes, I'm not scared. I I like it. Yeah. Buddy. Teaching us that denial real early. Okay. So then Junior Asparagus goes to his room and he's lying in bed and he's scared. And there's like a clap of thunder and Bob and Larry drop through the ceiling into his room. Probably genuinely the most terrifying thing that happens in this whole episode. Junior screams and says, who are you? And Bob gives that iconic line for my family. Hi, I'm Bob. I'm a tomato and I'm here to help. This is sort of the Christian media, right? Because like touched by an angel. Did you remember touched by an angel? Yes. Yeah. Like, hello, I'm Monica. Like she would just show up and like announce herself like Mm -hmm. every single time. And I feel like there's even another show that does that. Now I can't think of it. But anyway, yeah. I mean, you have to, you know, you have to introduce yourself. It's not every day. But like, I don't walk up to people and go, hi, I'm Nick. I'm white and I'm here to help. He actually did do that in our PhD program. Oh my God, did I? (laughs) 
don't remember half the shit that I say. So I'm terrified that sometime that sometime that's going to come up. I mean, maybe some version of like, hi, I'm Nick. I'm Italian. Yeah, you know, maybe. Or something like that. Yeah. OK, so the tomato, the a tomato and cucumber falls through poor junior ceiling. Right. Which in and of itself would be quite frightening. And and there's like some genuinely like, you know, silly moments that happen. Uh, junior says, what are you here for? And he's like, we're here because, you know, you're afraid. And, you know, Larry starts quoting the angel from the shepherds watching their sheep story. No, wrong one. You know, and Junior, this is where Junior says, I'm five. I can handle it. And they kind of like force him to admit that he's afraid. And he tells this little like spoken word piece, you know, shades of Carmen Mm. giving the spoken word piece. I would like you to read the first couple bits of this from Bob and Larry. Okay, this is the spoken word piece that they give sort of as a prompt to Junior. So Bob says, you were lying in your bed, you were feeling kind of sleepy, but you couldn't close your eyes because the room was getting creepy. And then Larry says, were there eyeballs in the closet? Was that Godzilla down the hall? Then Bob says, there was something big and hairy casting shadows on the wall. Now your heart is beating like a drum. Your skin is getting clammy. There's a hundred tiny monsters jumping right into your jammies. (laughs) And Bob says, what are you going to do, Junior, without missing a beat? I'm going to call the police. <laughs> Again, that's that's just funny. That's yeah. just funny. 911, some tiny monsters jumped into my jammies. Come quick. There's a couple things about this, like, inciting moment. The first is uh, setting the scene, you know, like, as a as a dungeon master, I like the the framing of the scene, getting your player into the mood. Then you give them a prompt. (laughs) Some of these things are more disturbing than others. The monsters jumping into your jammies. That one is like vaguely problematic. Am I wrong about that? It's a little weird. I couldn't put my like I couldn't entirely put my finger on it. But yeah, that's why I sort of smirked at the end because I was like, what the hell? Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, something like, you know, the, the Godzilla down the hall. That's kind of cute. Um, mm-hmm. The room is getting creepy. It's a little weird. Mm-hmm. But Bob says, no, you don't need to do anything. When you're afraid, don't do anything. That's that's our first piece of advice. Then Junior says, wait, why? And we get our chorus, which you can probably say from memory, Teddy. God is bigger than the boogeyman. Man. Bigger He's- than Godzilla or the monsters on TV. God is bigger than the boogeyman. And he's watching out for you and me. That's the conceit. That is the recursive conceit that they give to Junior to work with, which is God is bigger than the boogeyman. What do you think about this advice or framing on the part of the tomato who's here to help? So it kind of reminds me of how when I was a kid, I was super, super scared of demons. And everybody was always like, God's fighting the demons in the spiritual realm. When really what I just needed to hear was, girl, demons aren't real. <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> like, um, It's not the same, but it, it gives me that vibe of they're not really dedicated to like establishing reality. They're just dedicated to saying that, like saying what God is, which is that he's all powerful and amazing. I mean, that's the sort of ethos of this, right? Is that like they're not telling you these things aren't real. We were never told demons and, and you know, that, you know, there might have very well been a demon in my couch, you know, from the thrift store. That wasn't illogical. 
the important point was that God was bigger than that demon in my couch. And again, that's going back to that walking that line between the practical advice Mm -hmm. that works or is helpful and the, oh, don't do anything because, you know, God's got it. It's fine. I, I feel like there's so much wrong with the, and this is a direct quote from Bob, you don't have to be afraid because God is the biggest. I just got the immediate lo- uh, thought of like, my guy is the biggest and can beat up all the other gods. Right. It's not these things don't exist or even these things can't harm you. Mm-hmm. It's that you're connected with the strongest, baddest motherfucker in the room. Right. And nothing else. Like, so nobody's going to bother. Right. But also be afraid. Because, you know, they they might get you if you ever walk too far away from that guy. Right. There's always that risk. Right. Which is that I mean, it's not evident in this episode, but the the risk is always that even though God is bigger than said things, you as a human can actually do things to squelch his power and ability to help you, I guess, by inviting these dark things into your life that the whole kind of like rationale for like not engaging in Harry Potter and Pokemon and insert 10 other things, for examples. Mm -hmm. Was that, you know, God, sure, sure, God is bigger than these things, but you're like bringing them into your sphere now. So at the very end of this sequence, Junior's father comes into the room to tuck him in and he says, hey, I was a little worried that you might be scared. And he's like, no, I'm not scared because God is bigger. He's like, oh, okay, well, quote, we should be a little more careful about we watch on television anyway. Mm. Right. Like. There's that whole uncomfortable framework of like, great, you are correct. There is absolutely no reason to be afraid. However, you still need to police yourself. (laughs) Right, right, right. Junior asks a sequence of questions like, oh, is God bigger than this monster? And he's bigger than that monster. And the two I want to highlight is he goes, is he bigger than King Kong? Which, okay, depending on the mythology you follow and (laughs) certainly the myth mythos available at the time in the 1993 world, King Kong is significantly smaller than Godzilla. So by the transitive property, God is bigger than King Kong if he is in fact bigger than Godzilla. So a little bit of their monster, you know, cryptozoology being incorrect or, you know, but whatever. Fine. I I can let that go. Maybe I can. Then he asks if God is bigger than the slime monster. So we went from very specific monsters to just a generic slime Mm. monster and he asks bob can god squirt slime out of his ears to which bob doesn't answer so that's a maybe that's that's in the um books of the bible that were lost i think oh that's apocryphal right yeah 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 we just didn't get that part but yeah Mm. he does does that the book of slime (laughs) bob pulls him over to the window and he he points they have no arms he gestures and says what do you (laughs) see up there junior again without missing a beat my curtains. <laughs> Such a great joke. Oh, it's so good. It's like, no, it's the, the, the stars. And he's like, so the, the point that he makes here is God is made, God, what God made, the universe, the earth, the stars, all of these things are proof of his power inside, hmm. right? The fact of creation is self-asserting proof of God's existence, dominance, and power. Hmm. We're not doing any sort of creation apologetics here. Right. We're just taking for granted that creation is the way to view the world and that that asserts the power and size of God. Mm-hmm. Junior says something along the lines of like, man, the slime monster couldn't create everything. And if he did, it'd all be sticky. 
Fair point, Junior. There's two things about this. The first is a little bit silly, but like this is setting up a really weird magical world of like cryptid monsters versus deities. And I'm just picturing like God punching Bigfoot in the jaw. (laughs) But but right again, it's like God is strong enough and powerful enough and large enough to defeat in hand-to-hand combat any of the things that you're afraid of. Even celery with bolts in its head. Yeah. We see this play out, though, I think, you know, later in our Carmen episode as well. Yes, absolutely. Right? Yeah, this sort of like, I don't know, Christians loved it at the time. Maybe they still love it. I don't know. Um, this almost like God who is like in a duel <laughs> with with um, things that they're also telling you are both real and not real, I guess. Mm-hmm. Depending upon, you know, who you're talking to and what specifically you're talking about. Mm-hmm. The boogeyman obviously isn't real, but Satan is. And mm-hmm. God, you know, gets into that's like fight club all the time between mm-hmm. him and God. And God always wins unless you bring him in too much to your to your into your life. And then he might win. And then and then it's not God's fault. It's yours. This is getting complicated. Yeah. And not to get too deep into the theological reads here. Sure. Yeah. But yeah. if you believe that there is an enemy powerful enough to stymie your God, mm-hmm. then you're not a monotheist. You believe in two gods. Right. This is and 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 it's something important, I think, relevant to this story that we're talking about here. One of the ways that religions can handle the problem of evil is by sublimating the responsibility of evil to another deity. Sure. Right. So you have a good God and you have a bad God. Mm-hmm. Right. You have the one that's good and wants all the nice things for you, wants to provide for you and care for you. And then you have the one that's trying to mess you up and trip you up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very convenient. It is. It is absolutely convenient. But that is a polytheistic religion. Mm -hmm. But Christians get into a really tricky situation because in the Old Testament, the Israelites were not monotheists. They were monolterists. They worshipped one God, but they believed many existed. Mm -hmm. So the evil could be attributed to the other gods and their God could be whatever they needed it. Right. In contemporary times, When Christians toe the monotheistic line so hard, they have to hold the cognitive dissonance of my God is the only God, but all the bad stuff isn't his fault. It's this other guy's. But don't worry, because God is more powerful. But God doesn't knock him out. But also but and and that's where you get into that loop you just set up. Right. Right. Yeah. I I even kind of remember tapping into that cognitive dissonance a little bit as a kid thinking about like. If these other gods aren't real, if the gods of other religions aren't real, why is it so bad for me to read about them? Or mm-hmm. like, why is it, you know, so there there was always this weird, it was very, contra- it felt very contradictory. Um, yes. But unfortunately, if the goal here is to make a series of things, you know, messages for kids, kids are scared about a lot of things. So it's a great message, but also it's so complicated within Christian theology. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And that, I think, is really embodied in the Frankencellery character a little bit, right? Because once they calm Junior down and tell him there's nothing to be afraid of, they make the Frankencellery dude manifest in his bedroom. <laughs> he gets terrified and jumps into his toy box and he goes, it's Frankencellery. And he goes, um, actually, I'm Phil Winkelstein, an actor from Toledo. Oh, my God. <laughs> and. 
He's like, wait a minute. What? He's like, yeah, I'm just an actor. I didn't mean to scare you. First of all, Phil. Yes, you did. You were paid to scare people. That is your job. (laughs) Second of all, all the things that you're scared about aren't even real. Right. The unreality of what we are afraid of. So again, we're but again, literally within, I think it's a minute of song later, Junior's dad walks in and says, we need to be careful because we could do something. He doesn't give any why. Mm -hmm. There's just sort of this subtextual or else. Yeah. And I think, you know, if this was like a secular show or just like a normal show, I would say that's a fair thing to tell kids like you need, you know, you may not be ready for this. If you're feeling scared, maybe you shouldn't watch these things. Right. These are things I would have said to my, you know, the kids in my life, but packaged within the the bigger message of, you know, the episode, um, it feels more like the interpretation you're offering, I think. And and you pointed to. A very important caveat I think we should make at this point is there's nothing wrong with wanting to teach kids good morals or even valuable lessons like, hey, you shouldn't be afraid of things or you should be careful about what you take in. Mm -hmm. Those are all good messages. The problem becomes in how they are packaged. Right. (laughs) One thing that Junior's dad and he sort of ends the episode with is he goes, well, I think we should be care- more careful about what we watch on television. It's time to shut the thinker down now. <laughs> oh, I mean, man, right on your bulbous nose, Daddy Asparagus. <laughs> right. right on your bulbous nose. Time to shut the thinker down. From here, we go to a silly song, which is just like really arbitrary and really just off the wall move into the Daniel story after going through that first one. Is there anything you want to add to your thoughts on the Daniel story? I think it's really great so far. No, I don't. I don't think so. The only thing I'll add is that like that story isn't so much about fear, but they tell it in such a way that it is. It also highlights the idea of the social other as a villain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. There's somebody who believes different from you and is out to get you because of how you believe. Yeah. The alienation of the social other or the the villainization of the social other mm-hmm. in that context. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. At first, actually, when I watched the episode last night, I was like, man, if someone would have asked me, like, what is the, the Daniel and the Lions story about? I would not have said it's a story about fear or it's a story about like reigning in one's fear or worries or anxiety or whatever. Um, but they certainly present it in that way um, to fit within to the episode focus or whatever. But there's a boogeyman in that story, too. There right? is a boogeyman in that story. Yeah. yeah. And there's always a boogeyman, I think, in a lot of these Christian stories. So in some ways, it's not that different. <laughs> yeah. I will say that, like, in the actual Daniel story, like, biblically, um, you get this interesting commentary that, like, the king appoints multiple like people to help him rule sort of like governors the way the story goes in the bible is that daniel was just so good that the king gave him extra privileges and extra responsibilities oh and the other governors are like jealous so they invent a rule that they want to give to the king that will cause daniel to be arrested and disqualified from his status, mm. which is interesting that it's such a common story in Christian like 
framework because, you know, it's the meritocracy, it's the superiority of Christians, it's anybody who's not feeling jealous about it and inventing laws to trip them up and to take them into oppression, right. all that kind of stuff. The VeggieTales episode proper ends with a return to the framing narrative where Bob and Larry walk over to QWERTY, the computer. Because apparently in the early 90s, people kept their desktop computers on their kitchen counter. Bob says that QWERTY is going to give us a verse to apply to our lives. I don't know if you remember this, but there's a song and it's like a bit that they do where every time they go over to QWERTY, a song starts playing about what we've learned applies to our lives today. It's in the book, so we'll take a look. I do remember that. And so there's just a little bite-sized Bible verse that they then use to sort of summarize the lessons from the episode. So Teddy, given that we studied fear and Daniel, where do you think we drew our Bible verse from? I don't know. It, this is, is a sword like, drill you can't lose. Uh, is it like the um, be anxious for nothing verse? Or or is it the um, is it the one if God will take care of the sparrow, he'll take care of you. Why worry about your life? It is not. Those were good. Those were good. Those answers. were good. I would have even also thought that any verse from the actual book of Daniel <laughs> might have been a more relevant verse, considering we're, you know, we literally told the story of Daniel. The verse we get is Isaiah 41.10. So do not fear, for I am with you. With you. Okay. That's nice. Yeah. I mean, completely irrelevant, except that it says don't fear. It does seem, it, it does seem like it would have made sense to do a verse from Daniel if the point is sort of to build biblical knowledge. But, you know. Right. But again, and I think this goes along with Vischer's comment like that he didn't teach christianity he taught christian behavior mm. and these kind of broader values right these broader like- values uh, uh, enforced by a proof text that isn't framed in any like greater context mm. right and it, it goes along with what we've been saying has been a feature of this period of christianity which is yes. boiling biblical principles down to marketable phrases and then building up from there. Yes, I think I specifically said that about the Rebecca St. James yes. book, you know, that like she had these sort of really, you know, kind of compelling, memorable, um, you know, sort of teachings or or I don't even know what word to use um, that would really convict people. But there were they weren't really linked to scripture, you know, um, as someone who experienced, by the way, both the Baptist church and the Pentecostal church. This to mm. me feels like the distinction between the teachings of those denominations. Like I learned the bulk of my Bible in my Baptist church and then very much felt like Pentecostal church was more so like a working backwards, you know, like rather than starting with the scripture, starting with an idea that then mm-hmm. like they linked to the scripture. Yeah. It's a popular approach. It makes sense. I get why they do it. It's, it's, you know, it makes for a lot of marketable content, I think, which is also a huge takeaway from our season this year, I think. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think tying it all together with like the, the genuine innovation that comes from, you know, where's God and I'm stared being like the first fully computer animated movie, really that like genuine innovation, that genuine creativity 
it ultimately kind of comes down to marketing. Mm-hmm. You know, VeggieTales ultimately, I don't want to say failed, but like it went bankrupt shortly after it did the Jonah movie. Mm-hmm. It was the subject of lawsuits for possibly breaking contracts. That was overturned. They didn't, you know, break their contract, uh, but that bankrupted them. And really, you know, Visher never really achieved his dream of being a Disney style mogul because he was outshined by actually Disney and Pixar and you know, DreamWorks and all that stuff. I was going to ask you uh, where VeggieTales is today, if it exists. I also, you know, when I was looking for the episode to watch and prep for this, I saw a lot of, you know, I saw some some YouTube videos that were like the downfall of VeggieTales and the scandals surrounding VeggieTales. I did not watch any of them, but, you know, I must have just left the church right at the, the you know, time where this was happening because I had no idea this was in the discourse. Like this was even conversation. I didn't even know they had any association at all with downfalls and scandals. Yeah. And, um, so, yeah, I was going to ask you, like, where we're at today with this. That's a great way to to, to sort of wrap this. Scandal is taking it a bit heavy. Okay. Okay. Uh, usually the, the yeah. Usually the 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 people that are call, calling it a scandal are Christians who are upset with where it is now. Okay. After the lawsuit and the bankruptcy filing, they needed to sell, and they did. They sold to a company that owns a lot of like classic animation characters and things like that. Eventually, um, it actually landed at Netflix and NBC. Or okay. It landed at NBC, I think, and Netflix took it over. I don't remember the specific timeline. <laughs> but basically, when it landed at NBC, they said, hey, we want to actually turn VeggieTales into a Saturday morning cartoon. Mm. One caveat, you got to tone down the Jesus shit. Oh, yeah. And hence the scandal. Got right? it. Um, <laughs> basically, NBC's claim, which I actually think is kind of reasonable, is we're just a general organization. We have to adhere to a particular level of programming standards. And part of that is not directly advocating for a particular religion. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't want to, you know, you wouldn't, Christians wouldn't be happy if NBC put out a show teaching, you know, doctrines from the Quran. Seems reasonable. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, big idea that which wasn't under Vischer's like purview at this point, he wasn't like leading it. Agreed. And so actually, if you look for VeggieTale stuff now, you'll see that there are VeggieTales that have color irises. Hmm. Those are things owned by NBC and Netflix. Whoa, that's interesting. Yeah. And kind it, of eerie. <laughs> yes. Oh, they're te- I actually think they're terrifying. It has lived on in Saturday morning cartoons with NBC. Um, you can still find it on Pure Flix if that's your gig. There was even for a little while a talk of another like reboot show coming through Netflix. So there's it still exists in some capacity, but it is certainly not the same as what it was. And just backpedaling a second, they went they, they experienced bankruptcy because the movie didn't make them why did they do you know why they went bankrupt i mean was it about the movie not producing what they wanted it to or what it was what that? it wasn't because the movie didn't produce what they wanted around the time they were releasing jonah that's okay. their big movie their full fe- fe- first feature length film they were experiencing a lawsuit with their distributor okay their distributor claimed that they broke a verbal contract by leaving 
I see. Okay. Which a court in Texas agreed with Mm -hmm. and said, you broke contract, you owe your distributor basically $11 million. Mm -hmm. A year and a half later, it got overturned. Oh. And they were like awarded like a level of damages. But Mm -hmm. in order to pay what they were ordered a year and a half earlier, they had to declare bankruptcy. Got it. Okay. The damage was done, even though from a legal perspective, they were vindicated. Mm -hmm. Scandal is a heavy word in a world of, you know, like an opposed to Donald Trump world. Scandal is a bit of a heavy handed word. Well, in in the Me Too era, especially yeah. scandal to me is like, oh, who 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 harmed who? You know, I mean, yeah. um, so I, I like I said, I didn't watch those videos, but it seemed to attract this kind of dialogue. But knowing now that Veggie Tales was confronted with the issue of sort of toning down the Christian narratives, that would totally be scandalous to yeah. Christians and would probably create a lot of like, you know, a bit of a again, a bit of a martyr complex of like the. Um, you know, we need to take the high road and and Christians fabricating a martyr narrative. I Eddie, know. No, it's not be accusatory here. I think it's time we turned off our thinkers. <laughs> oh, if only. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for joining today's discussion on Oh God, I Forgot About That. If you enjoyed the episode and don't want to miss future conversations, please follow us so you get notifications of upcoming episode releases. You can also interact with us between episodes on sites like Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Make sure to search for us and chat with us in those places. Oh, and one last thing. I'd be so grateful if you rated the podcast. It'll keep us visible and ensure that others hear about us. Thanks again for joining us on this journey of remembering. Talk to you soon. Lucy Anderson, by the way, hope you're doing okay. Reach out.